I should like to call your attention this evening to the message of the 84th Psalm, dealing perhaps particularly tonight with the uh, first three verses, the first three verses in the 84th Psalm. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts my King and my God. Now here, as you noticed in the reading at the beginning, and as you recollect this psalm and its great message, the psalmist is praising and thanking God for all the blessings of the godly and of the religious life. It is generally agreed that this was probably a psalm written by King David, and written probably at the time of the rebellion of his own son Absalom, when everything, as it were, was going against David, and when it seemed very doubtful whether he'd ever return to Jerusalem again and ever have the privilege of reigning anymore as king. It is probably such a psalm written by David at such a time. And here he is, thanking God, thanking God for all that he meant, uh, that he, God, meant uh, to David and for everything that he'd ever received from him. And even going so far as to say, I would sooner be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather, he says, in effect, be a fugitive as I am at this moment and escaping for my life and out in the wilderness rather than be in the very center of the godless life and enjoying what it regards as its greatest pleasures. Now, it's therefore a very notable psalm, because it is a a psalm of experience. It isn't something uh, theoretical. It isn't a man just uh, theorizing about life, but it's a man uh, talking about life as he experienced it, as he was experiencing it at that very moment, and especially as he was experiencing at its very worst, and when it was doing its very worst against him. So that, uh, therefore, I uh, commend it to you, because it uh, does seem to me to teach us what are some of the very elements and first principles of religion or of the Christian life, Call it which you will. And uh, therefore, if we but take the trouble to analyze it and to listen to what the psalmist has got to say, we shall arrive at uh, this understanding which is so necessary. Now then, let me put it to you all at once and briefly this evening in the form of a question. Are you able to react to life when it's at its worst and darkest? as David did in this way, when everything seems to be against you, as the hymn writer puts it, when all things seem against us to drive us to despair. When you're facing treachery, perhaps, 
as David was. The treachery of a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a friend, a trusted companion. There's nothing worse than that. But even when you're facing that sort of thing, how do you react to it? You see how David reacted? These are his terms. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be ever praising thee. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And then he ends off. It's so wonderful that he can't stop saying it. O Lord of hosts, he says. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. You see, he is rejoicing. He is very happy. In spite of circumstances. In spite of life. In spite of everything. Now, I say that the whole question, therefore, confronting us is just this. Are we able to speak like this? We really have no religion, truly speaking, if we can't say this. This is the true godly religious life. This is Christianity. This is its object. This is its purpose. This is what it is meant for and uh, designed to do. Well, very well, I say, let us uh, follow the uh, psalmist in uh, his account and description, and especially as he gives us his reasons and uh, his explanations. That is one of the great things about this psalm, and as it is about many of these uh, psalms, that the man not only gives his experience, but he analyzes it. He leads us to understand it. He expounds it to us. And uh, the result of that is that if we but uh, follow what he says, we shall then, I say, be able to arrive. Now, there is no need for any more to go out. You've been very slow in going out, all of you, but uh, now quite a number have gone. I really wondered whether anybody was going, but there's no need for any more. All right, well now let's uh, come back again to our psalm. The psalmist, you see, has a true understanding and diagnosis of life. And as I'm saying, he takes the trouble to analyze it for us and to show us these great principles without which uh, we can never arrive at this position and experience in which uh, he rejoices so much. Very well, then, what, uh, what is the method? What is it that uh, we have to observe? Well, the first thing clearly must be this. We must have some understanding of the very nature and the character of religion. I put this first because the psalmist puts it first. I put it first also and obviously because it is a failure to uh, see the importance of this that uh, accounts uh, for so many troubles in the Christian life and for the fact that so many people never become Christian at all. It's this uh, fundamental and uh, initial inability to really see what it really is all about. Now then, I've already put it in a very practical form too. Do we say this evening, are we able to say with this man, 
Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Can we join him in saying, How amiable are thy tabernacles? Now the psalmist, you see, he puts it in terms of his worshipping in the tabernacle or perhaps in the temple. The Old Testament always puts it in that form because men met together as we still do to worship God and to pray. What he says for the common act of worship is equally true of the private and of the individual. But he puts it like this in terms of temple worship or tabernacle worship. And that is why he puts it in terms of the amiability of the tabernacles of the Lord. Well, let me put it like this personally and individually. Are you enjoying religion? Is this the chiefest thing to you? Is this the thing which holds you and sustains you and fills you with joy and rejoicing even when everything has gone against you? That's what it's for. That is what it is meant to do. Come, let me put it in another term which he uses here and which I hope to refer to on a later occasion. Can you say tonight that you are like the sparrow that has found a house? Or are you like a swallow that at last has found a nest? Have you come to the point of rest and of peace and of satisfaction? Very well, I say. The way to discover all that is to look at his principles. And he starts with this general statement about the whole character and nature of religion. Let me put it to you simply this evening in the form of a number of propositions. The first is this. Religion consists of, or in, the knowledge of God. That's the thing this man is talking about, isn't it? The knowledge of God. Now, there is nothing which is more remarkable than the way in which that which is the first principle is so frequently and so regularly forgotten. It's almost incredible, but there are large numbers of people who have what we may describe as a religion without God. And there is such a thing possible. You can have religion without God, but it isn't this true religion about which this man is speaking. For the very essence of religion, I say, is to know God. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. There are large numbers of people still left in this country, even today, to whom religion is nothing but a part of the social round. It is the thing to do to go to a place of worship, perhaps on Sunday morning or perhaps with others on Sunday evening. They've done it all their lives. Why? Well, they were brought up to do so. They were taught to do so. They've never taken the trouble to think as to why they're doing it. They've never asked any questions about it. It's a part of the round. It's the thing to do. It's always been done, and they go on doing it. They've never had a single thought about God. Here they hear his name. They hear the scriptures read. They hear the prayers read and repeated. But they never really thought about God and their relationship to God. It's purely and simply a part of the social round and the thing to do. They obviously are not able to use this language of the psalmist because they've not even thought enough even to realize that that is the essence of it all. They certainly can never turn to God and say, 
my king and my God. It's a religion without God. But then there are others to whom, as you know, it's just a question of conduct and a question of behavior. You remember Matthew Arnold's famous definition of religion, don't you? Matthew Arnold said that religion uh, is nothing but morality tinged with emotion. You see, he drew a distinction. You can have a morality pure and simple and nothing but morality. He says morality isn't religion. There is an additional factor in religion, and that is it. He says religion is morality tinged with emotion. There's a certain amount of feeling in it. It's still basically morality. Ah, yes, but the man who's religious, he has a certain amount of emotion and feeling in connection with his morality. And that is their conception of religion. And again, you see, you can hold that view of religion and God doesn't come in at all. You can be a highly moral person and talk a lot about morality and write a lot about morality and not believe in God at all. He may never be in your thoughts. The personal God never comes in. There are many such men in the world. Some of them are great men. And some of them have died quite recently. And they've been praised and lauded. They didn't believe in God. They were highly moral. And they were in a sense very good men. Yes, but they were nothing but good pagans. Morality. Or morality tinged perhaps with emotion. And then there are others for me to complete this list. And there are large numbers of these today, it seems to me, who think of it only in terms of uh, some kind of an experience. There are people who are miserable and unhappy for various reasons, and they look for happiness. And they're told that it can be found somehow or another in religion. They may have tried the cults and so on and not found it, and then they come to this, as I read in a very striking and telling phrase quite recently, and oh, how true it is. There are people whose religion consists of something like this. God, to them, is some kind of a, well, I'll quote exactly, a kind of great pal, a great friend, who's always there and ready and at hand to help you and to comfort you and to do whatever you want. Is it healing of the body? All right. Is it guidance? All right. Is it to feel happy? All right. It doesn't matter what it is. Is it friendship? God is depicted as this great friend, this great pal. Quite simple, so near, and all so easy. Well, you're familiar with all that kind of thing and these other things that pass in the name of religion, which are nothing but forms of psychology and psychological treatment and things of that kind. Well, the point I'm making is this. That's not the thing that this man had. The essence, I say, the first thing about true religion is that it means a knowledge of God. Well, how have these things come in? Oh, I'll tell you how they've come in. They've come in because the modern man always starts with himself. He really is the center of his own universe. He's only interested in himself and his own welfare and well-being and his own reactions. So he starts with himself and he ends with himself. Religion something that helps me. And ah, says this man, how wrong that is. Religion starts with God. 
There, not here, not with me, but with God. It's objective before it's subjective. But there, I think you'll agree, is the trouble with so many at the present time. And that is why they are in trouble and in difficulties. That is why they never seem to find that happiness that they're looking for and that rest and that peace for their souls. They start with an initial wrong conception. If you really want to know this men's experience, if you want to be able to speak like this, if you want to be able to face life and death and everything in this mood and in this way, well then I say there is only one hope and the hope is this. We start with him. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. It's a knowledge of God. Very well, what is this knowledge? Well, let me hold before you this evening some of the things that this man tells us in these first three verses. Religion, I say, true religion means a knowledge of God. And what do we know about him? Well, it's this. He is the living God. My soul longeth, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Not an idea, you see. Not a thought. Not a blessing machine, not a mere agency to which I can apply when I'm in trouble, but the living God. God is personal. Haven't we already expressed it in a hymn tonight? Lord of all being throned afar, thy glory flames from sun and star. Center and soul of every sphere. God, the living God. God is the source of all life, is the source of all being. God is eternal. God is everlasting. There is no beginning to God. There will be no end to God. Oh, don't we all agree at this point that half our difficulties arise from the fact that we forget that God is the living God? Haven't we all done it? I've done it myself, alas, hundreds of times, not to say thousands. I've been in an argument or a dispute about God and about religion. And I sat there with a pipe in my mouth or a cigarette and I expressed my views of God and others did. And we said this and that and criticized. If we realized that he was the living God and looking down upon us, we'd have been on our knees, prostrate on our faces, the living God. You remember how the prophet Daniel put it to King Belshazzar? He said, the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways. That is the one with whom you and I have to do. Have you ever stopped to consider, my dear friend, that God is the living God? Have you ever gone down on your knees and paused and meditated and said, I am in the presence of God? 
Have you thought of him in this personal way? Have you gone beyond all ideas and all teachings and realized that God is personal? He says, I am that I am. God is. The living God. Oh, I say, what a difference it would make if we but started with this and realized it as we should. God, you see, is not in our hands. God is not someone that we can put in front of us and discuss him and look around him. God is everywhere, and we are beneath him, and we're just looking up the living God. But come, let's look at one of his other terms. You notice the one he actually puts first is this. How amiable are thy tabernacles, he says, O Lord of hosts. What does he mean? Well, this is his way of describing the strength and the power and the majesty and the glory of God. The hosts of heaven. Ah, yes, he's behind them and beyond them. He orders them. He created them. He brought them into being. He put the rules in them. He guides them. He can interrupt them. The Lord God of hosts. The strength and the power and the majesty and the glory of God. You see, isn't it here we all tend to go so wrong. We talk about religion and we say, I haven't found this or that. And then we begin to criticize. Well, now, if God is a God of love, uh, uh, why does he allow this and that? I'm constantly getting these questions put before me. And here you are, you see, what's it all due to? Well, the trouble is, you see, we don't realize he's the Lord of hosts. He's above the flux of time. He's outside the process and the changes of history. We think this world is so big and so important, and it is, of course. I don't want to detract from that, but my dear friends, when you think of God, this world is nothing. He made it by a word. He said, let there be, and there was light. He is the Lord of hosts, and all I'm arguing for is this. That if you're in trouble about your religion and you don't know God and you feel your prayers are not very effective and efficacious, I'm just asking you a question. Is it, I wonder, because you've never realized who and what God is? We're all so much like Moses on that famous occasion of the burning bush, aren't we? There he was, you see, minding his sheep one afternoon. And have gone to the back side of the mountain and suddenly he sees a remarkable phenomenon. A bush was burning and yet it wasn't consumed. And as a typical man, a modern man, he said, I will turn aside and I will investigate this strange phenomenon. And a voice came out and said, stand back. Take off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. You remember Isaiah had a similar kind of experience. God gave him just a dim glimpse and revelation of himself. And the house was filled with smoke and the posts of the door began to shake and the glory of God was revealed. And Isaiah responded in the only right way when he said, I am a man of unclean lips. 
and I dwell amongst the people with unclean lips. If you want to be able to say, O Lord God of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee, this is the line, my friend, start by stopping and then thinking and then saying, the living God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory, my King, the King eternal, invisible, immortal, the only wise God that dwelleth in a light that is unapproachable, eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be. That's the secret. Now, do you see, before you begin to argue about miracles, and before you trot out the old question about Cain's wife, and before you begin to argue about the person of Jesus Christ, I say, go back and start. God! And then his other term which he uses. Did you notice it? He describes him and refers to him seven times as Jehovah. It's translated here by the word Lord. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Jehovah of hosts. Seven times in the psalm. He uses that word, the word Jehovah. And why? Well, this is one of the most important things of all for us. God is, as I have been reminding you, the living God and the mighty God of hosts. But if he had not revealed himself in this name, Jehovah, not one of us would ever have a hope of knowing him or of ever dwelling in his glorious presence. But God has revealed himself by this name of Jehovah. If you want to read the history, go back to the book of Exodus and read the first six chapters, and there you'll find all about it. Oh, Jehovah of hosts. What's it mean? It means this. That God has revealed his gracious purposes to mankind. He has revealed himself in promises, in covenants, in pledging himself to do certain things for us and for our well-being. He did it there, of course, on that occasion to which I've already referred when he met with Moses at the burning bush. There were the children of Israel down in Egypt in the bondage and in the captivity and in the hopelessness of it all. They couldn't do anything. They were hopelessly outnumbered by the Egyptians and the Egyptians were cruel and harsh and the poor children of Israel were pining away and their situation is desperate and hopeless. Ah, yes, but God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and this is what he said. I am come down. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to send you back and bring them out. God, the deliverer, the merciful God. The God of kindness and of compassion, the God of grace, the God of love. The God who tells us that in spite of our sin, he has visited us in his Son to redeem us. Jehovah, the covenant God, the God of the promises, and he'll never break them. 
Now there are the names that the psalmist uses with respect to God. And the principle that I'm therefore laying down this evening is just this. True religion consists in knowing God. In knowing that God. In knowing God as he is. The God that I have described to you in the terms that are used by the psalmist. The God that has so graciously revealed himself to us in these ways. But now, having said that, I've got to go another step forward because the psalmist goes a second step, and the second is this. True religion not only consists in a knowledge of God, it consists in a personal knowledge of God. Do you notice how he puts it in the third verse? Even thine altars, O Lord Jehovah of hosts, my king and my God, in other words, the psalmist is not talking here about some theoretical knowledge only. He is concerned about and interested in a personal relationship. And this is something that I cannot emphasize over much. You can have a theoretical, abstract, intellectual knowledge of God, but it isn't religion. Here is a man, I say, who is resting in the knowledge, who is rejoicing in it, who is calm and collected and happy. He says that this is so real that, as I've reminded you, a day in the courts of God is better to him than a thousand and he had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the very tents of wickedness. Why? Well, my king and my God, this great eternal God is his God. He knows him. He is related to him. And this is of the very essence of the whole position. I am his and he is mine forever and forever. Do you know God personally? Are you able to say, my king, my God, my God, how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright. Are you, I say, able to say that? That he is real to you, that he's personal to you. That God is your God. That you belong to him and in this great and mysterious manner. He belongs to you. Now I don't stay with that this evening. All I'm asking is this. Had you realized that that is true and real religion? Had you attained unto it? Had you arrived at it? I'm certain that at this moment you are anxious for me to make my next statement or to ask my next question, if you like, which is this. How is this knowledge to be obtained? How can I know God and how can I know him as the living God, as the true God, as the King, as this glorious God of hosts? 
How can I know that God is my God and will never leave me, nor forsake me? How can I get into the position of this man or David in the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I have no fear. I fear no evil. Why? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now then, how can we get there? That is the question. Wouldn't you like to be able to pray as this man prayed? And to go to God and to say, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. Wouldn't you like to have that? How can you know him? He gives the answer. There is only one way whereby we can ever come to this position and to this knowledge. Listen. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Where is it? Even thine altars, my king and my God. What's he mean by this? Well, here I say is the secret of it all. How did this man find God? How did he get to know him? What is the secret of this peace and joy that he is enjoying? He answers by saying that the secret is the altars. Did you notice the plural? He doesn't say even thine altar, but even thine altars, the plural, more than one. What does he mean? Well, you see, he is going back again to the imagery of the tabernacle and the temple. Do you remember it? You approach the temple, and there is the opening. And there is this outer court. And there it leads into the holy place. And that leads into the holiest of all, where God is in the Shekinah presence God is there in the holiest of all. How can I get to him? There's only one answer. I've got to pass two altars. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And what were these two altars? Well, the first and the order is vital. Is what was called the altar of sacrifice the altar to which they took the animals when they had killed them and placed their bodies upon the altar and burnt the body. The altar of sacrifice. What's this? Well, God had given them the commandment and had taught them the way. He had said that there was no approach into his presence except they brought blood. There is no remission of sins without shedding of blood. So they took animals and they smote them. They slew them and they took the blood. They burnt the bodies and then they went in with the blood. The high priest. The altar of sacrifice. And then there was another altar. Which was called the altar of incense. What does that mean? Well, there was an altar on which they always burnt this incense. And that is typifi typifying prayer. You first of all have to sacrifice, 
Then you go with the blood, but even then you need the incense, and then you go into the presence of God. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. What's it all mean, says someone? You're talking about an Old Testament psalmist. What has all this to do with me? My dear friend, it still applies. It's still true. What the man is saying, you see, is this. The moment a man realizes the being and the nature and the character of God, he realizes his own sinfulness. The living God, the author of life and of all being, that holy God that is beyond description there in heaven with all his power, and I, small, minute, sinful, vile, unworthy, how can I approach him? And God has given the answer. I cannot approach him as I am. I am too sinful, I am too vile. My sins must be taken away. And he taught the people under the Old Testament to put them on the animal. They laid their hands upon the animal. They transferred their sins. And the animal was sacrificed and placed upon the altar. And God is satisfied. The altar? And that is still the only way to go to God. If you but realize the nature and the being of God and your own sinfulness, you'd never dare to pray to him as you are. You'd never rush into his presence. You'd say, God is in heaven and I am on earth. And he's mighty and I'm small. And I'm in his hands. And he can do as he pleases with me. And I'm vile and rotten. How can I approach him? And there is only one answer to the question. We have an altar. There is a sacrifice. God sent his own son into this world, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he made his soul a sacrifice for our sins. He placed himself upon the altar, and God placed our sins upon him. That's the meaning of the bread and the wine. This is representation of the altar. The altar on Calvary's hill. The lamb that was slain. Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. The altar is still essential. I cannot know this God except I go through Christ. And then that second altar... The altar of the incense. How can I go into the presence of God? In my weakness and my sin, and with all my troubles and my problems. Well, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews answers your questions in these words. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
Therefore, he says, what's he mean by the therefore? What he's just been saying. He says, we have a great high priest that is passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, a high priest that can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. How can I go to God? Here's the answer. The blood of sacrifice, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, the atonement for my sins, and then Christ the high priest that has entered into the presence of God and is there at this moment And as I pray to God, he pours the incense of his own blessed person upon my prayers, and they go to God, pleasing and acceptable, with the holy aroma of the Son of God upon them, even thine altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Have you found it difficult to pray? Have you felt when you've gone on your knees that you're talking to yourself that you don't know God? My dear friend, this is why you haven't been via the altars. The altars are essential. There is no knowledge of God except in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is no other way into His presence. You don't understand? I know. I don't understand. I believe it. God has appointed the altar. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. Oh, says the psalmist, it is even thine altars, O God of hosts, that gives me everything, the sacrifice, the incense, and we have it all in the person of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed. That's why we do this. We declare his death. It's his death that gives us life. It's in and through him the living way that we enter into the presence of God. Knowing that in Christ and him crucified, God has forgiven all our sins and has reconciled us unto himself and is ever ready and willing to receive us graciously. My beloved people, have you visited the altars? Have you found rest at the altar? Do the bread and the wine speak peace to you? As you take them, do you thank God, as this man thanked him, for pardon and forgiveness, for life, for sustenance, for power, for all you need in time and in eternity? The altar, the altar of sacrifice, the altar of the incense. It's the only way to know God. This knowledge of God is alone found at the altars. And lastly, you notice that when a man has thus found God and has come to know him, nothing else matters to him. You notice that it takes up the whole man. 
My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. My soul, my heart, my flesh, my whole man, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's what he's saying. Are you saying it? This is true religion. When we have it, when we know God, this God as our God, He is everything to us. And there is nothing else that is worth bothering about. If you've caught but a glimpse of Him, well, then I say the desire of your whole being will be to know him as the heart panteth after the water brooks on a day like this. As a hungry, weary, thirsty traveler in the desert looks for a spring or for a well, so panteth, fainteth. My heart after thee, the living God. My dear friends, this is the question. Do you know him? Have you found him? Are you resting in him and rejoicing in him? Can you say, blessed is the man that trusteth in him? Are you blessed? Would you like to be? Would you like to know him? I say again, there is only one thing to do. Come to the altars. Jesus Christ, a sacrifice for sins. Jesus Christ, the high priest seated at the right hand of God, who knows all about us, who's been in this world, has been weary and faint, sorrowful and sad, has experienced treachery and shame, persecution and all the ills of the world. He knows all about you. And he is with God seated at his right hand. Visit the altars. Rest at the altars. And then I can assure you, you will be able to say with this man, my king. Yes, my God. Though he is so great and glorious, and I am so small and sinful, he is my 